Well, good morning. Ooh, this ain't going to be good. Let's try this again. Good morning. Love it. Awesome. My name is Dwight Castle. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. I'm so thankful to be able to be with you today, opening up God's Word and closing out our summer sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. Now, as we have been doing for the past eight weeks or so, as we've been walking through this text, I'm going to open us in prayer right now, and then at the end, I'll cue us, and we can all pray the Lord's Prayer together, which can be found in your worship, God. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to you today all needy. Some of us are very aware of our need. Our needs are in front of us, and we feel desperate for you. And others maybe are not quite so aware of our need, but we all need you. And we come to you because you alone have the words of life. You have water for our thirsty souls. And so we ask that you will feed us today as we come to you. Lord, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And now we pray together as you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, today we are going to close out our study of the Lord's Prayer by looking at that last phrase that we all just prayed together. This is often referred to as the closing doxology of the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to know where we're going today with this sermon from the beginning. So I'm going to give you a little map, okay? Here's what we're going to do with our sermon. We're going to break it up into two parts. The first part, we are going to look at this idea of God's kingdom, his power, and his glory. And it's my prayer that this will give us a new perspective. Here's the new perspective. You ready? It's going to be groundbreaking. God is in control. Now, here's the good news. If God is in control, that means that you and I, we are not in control. Doesn't that sound nice? Just a little refreshing. Here's what I want everyone to do. Put out your hands like this, okay? Go ahead. Let's all do it. Now, I want you to clench them tightly into a fist. Hold it here for a minute. Now, this is usually us in life. This is how we tend to, to approach things, white-knuckled. We hold on to everything. We think it depends on us. And if you do this for long, you start getting tired and a little sweaty. Now, slowly release and just open and hold them here for a minute. Just sit there. Doesn't that feel better? I want our shift in perspective today to help us to do this, to rest in God's rule. Now, our second part of our sermon is going to help us know how we pivot from this new perspective to having a new purpose. This purpose should wake us up to action. 
When we rightly have the perspective that God is ruling over his kingdom, that he loves and cares for everyone and everything in his kingdom, it makes us want to join in his work because it's not on our shoulders. It's not all up to us. So today, it's my prayer that we will have this new perspective and renewed purpose. And the link between these two points is going to hinge on this word, amen, in the prayer. I'm not going to go into it now. We will. But look for how that word, amen, connects our renewed perspective and our renewed purpose. Let me tell you a story about this. Some of you guys might be familiar with some of what me and my family have walked through over the past couple years. About two and a half years ago, my wife and I had conjoined twins that were born. Uh, it was a challenge, to say the least, right? So it uh, sent us to Philadelphia where we had to move for a year, where our daughters were in the Children's Hospital Philadelphia for the first year of their life, working their way towards a separation surgery, which went really well, and they're doing really healthy right now, praise God. That was an extremely hard year for our family. And a little over a year ago, we returned back to Birmingham. And life continued to be hard in the reacclimation phase here. And I reached a point where I realized, I think I need a little break. Not exactly in what I would call a good spot right now. So I had a conversation with my wife, and she uh, graciously said, yeah, you're not. Uh, you do need a break. <laughs> you, why don't you go get away for a while? I said, that's a good idea. I'm going to go into the woods, because that's what I do when I need a break. I don't want to be by myself, because I'm an extrovert, but I don't want to be around a lot of people. So we made this plan. I was going to go up to Maine with my cousin, and we were going to hike for a week on the Appalachian Trail, the last hundred miles of the Appalachian Trail, known as the 100-mile wilderness. So we had this great plan the week before my cousin gets COVID. Now, he decides he's going to be tough. He knows I need this, so he's going to just muscle through it. But after day one, we realize this isn't happening. Not good. So day two, we climb up to the top of a mountain. I call my wife, and I have a decision to make. Do I continue on for the next week solo on this backpacking trip, which honestly sounded miserable to me, not at all what I had in mind for this trip? Or do I turn back? I was in a bad enough spot, you know, that I thought, I need this trip. I, I'm going to go. We're gonna, my wife agreed. I said, I'm going to go do this thing. So I will spare you all the gory details. Come talk to me another time if you want. But I, for the next 115 miles, experienced probably the, one of the hardest experiences of my life, not only physically, but emotionally and mentally. But I want to tell you what happened. The Lord met me on that trail in a way that I never could have imagined. I thought that I just needed a break, right? Ah, I need to get away for a little bit. I need a little reset, kind of a shot in the arm. But no, the Lord was like, you're, you're desperate for me right now. And what you need is a new perspective. Because I went into that trip not really loving my life. I remember telling my wife, this isn't really what I had planned out for us. This isn't the way I saw things going. I'm not sure like how this is all going to go. I didn't really look forward to coming home at the end of a workday and having all of these complicated children to deal with and all the stressors that came with it. And I just said, this isn't fun, right? And I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. And the Lord said, no, 
I'm going to shift your perspective. You're going to have an entire week where you don't see a soul, and you're going to get really lonely. You're going to realize how much you love your family. And when you come home, you're going to just want to hug every one of them and never let them go. And I was forever changed by that perspective shift that, no, not only do I love my life and my children and my family, but I love the purpose that God has called me into. I am supposed to be a father and a husband, and he has given me everything that I need to do this. And that shift in perspective and then the purpose that came from it changed everything for me. And I am praying that's what God does to us with this passage today. But before we dive into it, before we go any further, let's talk for a brief moment about this doxology's place in the Lord's Prayer, because I know that some of you might be wondering, as we've gone through the series, it doesn't appear in all of the Bible's translations at the end of the Lord's Prayer. In some, it's there. Some, it's a footnote. Some, it's worded differently. Why is that? Now, there are a couple reasons. As Jeff addressed at the very beginning of this series, we see that there are variations, especially between Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. One of the main reasons is because that Jesus probably taught this prayer. He modeled it for his disciples and everyone listening multiple times. And similarly to other times in scripture, like uh, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, it was different each iteration. The themes and the content were the same, but the exact wording was a little varied each time. Additionally, I want us to remember how the Gospels went out at this time in the world. There was only one copy to start. So the Gospel of Matthew, for example, there was one, and it was shared, passed around from church to church until hand-copied distribution started happening. There were more copies that were made as people wrote them out word by word, and then multiple churches could study it together. This eventually led to the translation of the Gospels into different languages so that people in different cities and countries could study these words together. And in those early years, church tradition began to include this doxology as a sort of close of praise to the Lord at the end of the Lord's Prayer. It became so deeply ingrained in the rhythms and the liturgy of the church that most of us here have learned it this way. And that's why some of your Bible's translations might include it or have different versions of it, and why there's some debate as to whether it was originally part of Jesus's prayer or whether it was in a later edition. So for you and I sitting here today, how should we think about this doxology? Well, first, we know it has withstood the test of time. It has remained a part of the church's core liturgy for almost 2,000 years, and thus it gives us some confidence to stand on, much like a historic catechism or creed. But far more importantly, we can pray these words today in full confidence because we know that they are biblical. We know this doxology is biblical because these simple truths can be traced all throughout Scripture. Let me just direct you towards one passage right now. Look in your worship guide, if you will. We have 1 Chronicles 29. I want you to follow along as I read here, starting in verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. 
In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So you might notice that not only does this passage include much of the same phrasing as the Lord's Prayer, but it expresses the exact same theme that we're going to look at today. In this passage, King David is about to die. He's handing over his kingdom to his son Solomon. Now, David has saved up tons of money and resources for his son Solomon to build a temple for the Lord. And here, he's acknowledging that all of this work and all of the resources and really his whole life's legacy is actually the Lord's. It's a beautiful and fuller version of this closing doxology of the Lord's Prayer. This prayer here from King David is a foreshadowing to the prayer of the son of David, King Jesus, who will come and pray the Lord's Prayer, and then it's fuel for our prayers today. So let's dig into the doxology. What is this all about? I believe a helpful way to view it is that it is a conclusion sentence to all that has just been prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember in your writing classes when you were younger? Here's how I was taught to write. You give an introductory sentence that tells the reader where you're going, and then you tell them the actual content you want to convey, and then you recap what you had just told them. So this doxology serves as a sort of recap at the end of the discussion. Now, Jesus has packed a lot of information into this short prayer, which has taken us two months to unpack. It would be natural for us to reach the end of the Lord's Prayer and to have a little bit of a difficult time remembering all that we have just learned. It could even be easy to get bogged down in some of the finer points and miss the big picture. This doxology reminds us of the big picture, and it recalibrates our hearts. Let me give you an example. So I've mentioned I have kids. I have what feels like a circus a lot of times in my house. And I like to enter into the circus. I like to have fun with my children and play with them. I get in the fray. I'm kind of like a big kid myself. Sometimes I actually have to be reminded I'm not a kid. I know I'm not alone in this because as I look out here, I see some of you other dads that I have been to birthday parties with before. And I know that you like to enter into the fray too. Now, it could really be anything. It could be a birthday party at a rock climbing wall, a pool party, there's big inflatables or a water balloon fight. Any excuse that I have to have fun and get in the mix, I'm going to do, and I'm potentially going to take it too far. More than one time, I've had to be reminded by my wife that the water balloon fight or the inflatable slide is not actually for me. I can get lost in the fun and the competition of it all, And she has to pull me back and say, don't forget what this is all about. This is a birthday party for your six-year-old son, not you, an almost 40-year-old man. But I need that sometimes. I need to be reminded what this is all about, or I can easily lose my focus. So this doxology is accomplishing the same thing for us. If we aren't careful, we can unintentionally get lost in the fray of, What does it mean to be tempted, or is it tested, and by God, or wait, is it by the devil? Or asking God for providing for my needs, or wait, are those wants, and is he going to provide at this time, or is he not? Or maybe we get lost in theological dilemmas about God's will and man's responsibility, 
Before we know it, we get so bogged down that we forget what the whole thing's about. This doxology kindly pulls us back out and says, hey, this whole thing, it's about God. He is a king. He's the king. He's sitting on his throne, ruling over his people with total power. He's also a father, a loving, good, kind father. No matter what happens, he will receive all of the glory, always, forever. You see, a doxology in its very definition is meant to praise God. It leads us to worship God for who he is. And this doxology helps us to worship God because it's all his. Now, this kingdom language is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that's actually repeated. And I think that's because Jesus knows how incredibly easy it is for us to forget whose kingdom we are in. I mean, everything around us seems to make us think that the highest reality in the world are physical kingdoms with human rulers, the pursuit of power and fame and glory. Think about what occupies so much time and attention in our country and in our world. I mean, who's going to run it? Who will have the power? Elections and polls and shifts in leadership seem to be the key to all of it. Now, I remember when I visited Israel several years ago, we went to the old city of Jerusalem, and all the tour guides at this one point pulled out four by six note cards that were in a plastic sleeve that dropped down. It kind of reminded me of how fathers, proud fathers used to like pull out their wallet and have pictures of their children and it dropped down. That's the image in my head. So they drop it down and there's about 25 note cards that visualize every different empire that had risen and fallen in that exact place. It was fascinating. It was unbelievable to see how many kingdoms had come to power and then been defeated. And in that city, you could actually look around in the land itself. There were archaeological digs that showed layers of the dirt and ground that were each kingdom. I mean, all the world's history seems to be pointing to the idea of earthly kings and kingdoms, the pursuit of power, the desire for glory. So, We see why it's easy for us to fall into this kind of narrow and incomplete view of reality that just seems to slowly push God and his kingdom and his rule to the side. Now, it's not that these things don't matter or aren't true, but they aren't the ultimate reality, the truest perspective. This isn't just on a national or international level either. Think about your own life. What occupies your time and attention? What's your primary perspective for it all? I would guess it's a microcosm of the same thing. Who is in charge of your little kingdom? Not how do you stack up at work? Are you moving up the ladder? Are you getting the promotions or the pay or even just the respect that you deserve? How do you measure up against everyone else in your neighborhood or in your gym or on social media? Do we have all the right stuff, the right house? Are we dressed the right way? Are we going on all the cool enough vacations? Do our kids represent us well? Are we in the right friend group? Here, I'll make it personal for me as an example. Even this week, as I was focusing on this passage and trying to keep my mind on the reality of God's kingdom, I would find myself completely overrun by my own perspective, with the view that I was in control of it all and had to fix it. So here's a little snapshot for a second into my mind this week. Dangerous. 
Ah, oh, this is going to be a busy week. I have a lot going on. I'm really not going to have much margin. I don't think I'm going to be able to see my kids very much, unfortunately. I don't know when I'm going to get to spend some time with my wife. I have to write a sermon at some point. Every night I have soccer and futsal. That's going to take up all of our time. Oh, you know, I hope that that kid, my one special child, did well at school today. I wonder if I gave him enough of a pep talk that he made wise decisions. Wait, is that mold in my air vent? I hope not. I'm going to have to get that checked out. And when am I going to have time to weed eat those weeds outside? Oh, speaking of, I also have to pay my credit card bill or I'm going to get a late fee. And I needed to order that cargo box for my rooftop for our next trip. We have so much stuff. How do I have five kids? This is a disaster. Speaking of disasters, Elizabeth, I wonder if she's going to start eating food soon. I really want to get that G-tube out. She did have a cold this past week, so maybe that's why she's not eating as much. I hope she's okay. I wonder which days I'm going to go to the gym this week. I don't want to get up early. I'm so tired. I haven't been sleeping that well. It is really hot. Maybe that's why. Why is it so hot? Okay, I'll stop there, but you get the idea. Now, maybe I'm a little crazier in the head than the rest of you, but I would guess that if we were to be in all of your minds this week, you would have similar things going through your mind. Now, none of these things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but what can happen over time is that I get completely consumed in my own world, my own kingdom. Now, I begin to see myself as the person that's in charge of that kingdom, and I evaluate myself with how much power I do have and don't have to be able to rule this kingdom. And then I start worrying about how I look to others as I'm ruling it. And before I know it, it's my kingdom, my power, my glory. And what Jesus is doing here is he's gently reminding us, no, it's all mine. It always has been. It always will be. So stop trying so hard, Dwight. Just let go. You aren't actually in charge of it all, you know. It's not your kingdom. It doesn't rise and fall based on your power. You don't have to get it right for the sake of your glory. Your hold on things isn't necessary. And your grip really isn't that good anyway. Aren't you just tired? Let go. It's my kingdom. This should be water for our thirsty and weary souls. We need this shift in perspective every moment of every day. We need to begin each day by asking God to remind us of the unseen reality, to see past what's visible and pressing in front of us, and to see the redemptive reality that God is sitting on his throne, ruling over all of his creation. So why is this so hard for us? I mean, if we look around at our lives in the world, it doesn't always seem like God is sitting on his throne ruling over everything perfectly, does it? I think it's hard to remember because we live in the already, but the not yet. Joel talked about this concept when he taught on thy kingdom come several weeks ago. Jesus had already inaugurated his kingdom with his coming. We can see the cross and the resurrection and even in our lives, all kinds of redemption happening. It is clear that Jesus has begun redeeming things, but the kingdom is not here yet in full. 
Jesus will return to the earth. He will make all things right. He will make all the sad things come untrue. But it hasn't happened yet. So we live in this in-between tension. And we need God's spirit to open up our eyes to the reality of God's kingdom and his kingship, even when it's hard to see now. Now, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, there's this fascinating conversation between these two men. You have two rulers with two very different definitions and understandings of what kingdom, power, and glory are. Pilate actually asks Jesus, are are you a king? He seems bewildered by what Jesus' definition of this could mean. I mean, Pilate's looking for Jesus' land, his army, his power, his royal pomp and glory. But Jesus tells him, he's like, my kingdom's not of this world. Pilate continues to question Jesus, trying to get to the bottom of it because he's not fitting his mold. He gets frustrated and he says to Jesus, don't you realize that I have the power over your life? I get to say what happens to you. You can kind of see his chest puffing up. Jesus just calmly looks at him and says, no, you have no power whatsoever except that which has been lent to you by God. Now, make no mistake, this is a showdown between kingdoms, power, and glory. And it's the same exact thing that happens in our minds and our hearts every day. Am I in charge? Is this my kingdom, my power? No, it's not. This doxology gently recalibrates our perspective to the greater reality of Jesus' kingship. Now, the doxology ends by saying, amen. This might, not seem, this might seem like a throwaway word, but don't miss this, because it's not just the classic ending to a prayer. It's not like saying bye to God after you've done, talk, done talking with him. The word amen means truly, or let it be so. The theologian A.W. Pink says that this simple word expresses our longings and affirms our confidence in what what has just been said. Another scholar, Clifton Black, he says this about the significance of the word amen. This is a good quote. Is everyone still with me? All right. Here's what he says. To say amen is to bind oneself to that confession's truth and its fulfillment. To utter amen is no empty piety. By saying it, we affix our personal signature to every petition that we've just made, end quote. What he is saying is that when we say amen, we are co-signing the truth and the reality of what has just been said. So stop and pause for a minute here. Do you agree with everything that has just been said in the Lord's Prayer? Sit in it for a moment. Do I really co-sign my life on this statement? Black says that we are binding ourselves to the confession's truth and its fulfillment. Don't miss that second part. That's what brings us to our second part of the sermon, which don't worry, is significantly shorter. We're almost done. If we believe that God is king and that everything around us is actually part of his kingdom, then we should live in a way that reflects and proclaims this. 
We see this biblical principle in Luke chapter 6. Jesus tells a parable about two men. You have one man who builds a house on this firm, solid foundation that's a rock. And then you have another man who builds his house on the sand. This is a fairly clear image, but somehow I think we've missed what Jesus is saying in this. He says that the wise man who builds his house on the rock is the man whose actions align with his words. He says, Lord, Lord, and then he really builds his life, his house on the Lord. And then the foolish man, his life and house is going to fall apart when storms come because he says, Lord, Lord, but he doesn't live as if that actually has any bearing on his life. In other words, if we say amen to the Lord's prayer, our lives must be lived in this way. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives his final words to his disciples. It's the famous great commission, which is really a fulfillment of the Lord's prayer. I mean, you have Jesus here saying, hey guys, all authority has been given to me. It's my kingdom, my power, my glory. And then he says, now go. He commissions out his followers and us to live under that reality. Go tell everyone because it should change everything. As Christians, we are given a mission. We are to live in a way that speaks of and demonstrates the reality of Jesus as king and the whole world as his kingdom. If we really believe this, it should move us to action, to show them that there's a father and a king that loves them. Our purpose is to help free others from the tyranny of self-rule that they feel trapped in. They aren't in charge, and neither are we. But God is, and that's freeing. So here's the question. Here's the question for us today. How do I handle all of those things that run through my head? in light of Jesus' kingship. How do I handle the way my children act in public? Is it an effort to retain my glory, my reputation, my sense of control over them? Or instead, now, is it a humble resignation to God's kingship that he's over my children, he's over my reputation, He will lovingly care for them better than me, and he frees me from worry about this and worry about how I I look to others. How will I handle the conflicts that I have with my spouse or my friends or neighbors or coworkers? Will I operate as if I am trying to retain that upper hand of power at all costs and I really have to protect my own? Or will this now freely give voice to Jesus' kingship which really is a kingship of humility and self-sacrifice that puts others' needs ahead of my own? How will I think about finances and the future and all the pressing things that weigh on us? Do I have to be absolutely responsible to solve all of those? Or can I trust that God is sitting on his throne ruling over every single one of those decisions? Can I entrust myself to him And know that he will guide me through every one of them. How do I orient my time and my money and my priorities in life? Are they decisions that pursue my own kingdom and my own comfort? Or now are they going to be laid down before him and say, Lord, I will go wherever you have me to go. I will speak to whoever you want me to speak to about your kingship. Some of us today need a perspective shift. We need to see Jesus 
on his throne. We need to just let go and rest, knowing that he is the one in charge of everything and not us. We need to yield over our facade of control and take great comfort in his. But some of us are aware of that reality, but we're purposeless in life. We need to be shaken out of our aimless drifting and our spiritual gluttony. We're sitting on a gold mine. We're just sitting on the truth, the good news that we have a father and king who cares for us and the whole world. And we need to start living and acting in a way that makes the world ask us questions because we live so differently, because our decisions and our words and our lives give off the aroma and the hope of Christ. So where are you today? Ask the Lord to give you an honest window into your own heart. Now, one of my favorite resources is a book of liturgies called Every Moment Holy. This is it right here. Possibly my favorite liturgy in it is called A Liturgy for First Waking. And I begin many, many of my days by literally opening up my hands in this sort of posture to God and reading this. I believe that this prayer, this liturgy, it's a beautiful cry to God. It's an offering of an amen that seeks to both rest in him and to be woken up to actively live under his reality. And I would like to read this liturgy over us now in closing. And as a sign of humble submission to the Lord, I would ask each of you to put out your hands and receive this. We'll close with this prayer a liturgy for first waking. Lord, this is our prayer. I am not the captain of my own destiny, nor even of this new day. And so I renounce anew all claim to my own life and desires. I am only yours, O Lord. Lead me by your mercies through these hours that I might spend them well, not in harried pursuit of my own agendas, but rather in good service to you. Teach me to shepherd the small duties of this day with great love, tending faithfully those tasks that you place within my care, and tending with patience and kindness the needs and the hearts of those people that you place within my reach. Nothing is too hard for you, Lord Christ. I deposit now all confidence in you that whatever these waking hours bring, my foundations will not be shaken. At day's end, I will lay me down again to sleep, knowing that my best hope is well kept in you. In all things, your grace will sustain me. Bid me follow, and I will follow. Amen.